So there's a famous quote in a movie that I'm sure many of you have seen at some point. A young girl named Dorothy grows up on a farm with her aunt and her uncle, the farmhands there, uh, living in black and white on that farm there in Kansas. And this young lady, Dorothy, she gets caught up in a tornado, a twister. And when she wakes up, when she wakes up in Technicolor, no less, she looks around and she utters this famous line to her Scottish Terrier friend. She says, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Well, friends, this morning I want to tell you, I don't think we're living in Jerusalem anymore. It's time for us as the church to take a look around and, and accept that things have changed. The culture that we're living in, the culture we find ourselves here in the West, in America, here in South Jersey, can no longer be called a Christian culture. People who are much smarter than me and have studied sociology and things like that say that in every culture that changes, there, there are kind of three stages that go along with that culture change. You've got the first culture, the second culture, and the third culture. You have the culture that exists, the culture that it changes to, and then another culture comes along that's a reaction against that second culture that arises. So in the history of Western civilization, you've got you know a pre-modern time before the scientific revolution. The scientific revolution ushered in a the modern period where everything was determined based on whether it could be scientifically proven. So pre-modern, modern, and then we end up with the postmodern, which is a reaction against that certainty that came with the scientific uh, method and the modern period. Similarly, you can look and you can see there was a pre-Christian period before Christ came, before Christianity spread throughout the world. Uh, you had a Christian period um, through much of Western history, uh, different points. Uh, we've seen that Christian history. It, even here in America, you, you can see uh, there is a shift after the Second Great Awakening. And we entered into what's, you know, broadly considered a, a Christian context, a Christian society. But then you also have this post-Christian reality, which is what I think we find ourselves in now. Western culture is post-Christian. Not in the sense of moving beyond Christianity, but reacting against Western culture today wants the benefits of Christianity without the expectations. They want a kingdom without a king. They want justice without a judge. They want uh, the rules without an authority figure. And Christians now are a minority, if not in number, at least in voice and influence. The values of Western culture no longer are the values of the kingdom. And that's true. I don't care which side of the political aisle you sit on. That's true. And so Christians today, in a way, are, are living in the West in exile. What, this is what David Kinnaman and, of the Barna Group and Mark Matlock call 
digital Babylon we find ourselves in. And today we're going to look at what it means to live as people of faith in exile in a culture that's no longer our home. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some areas uh, from research that research has shown to strengthen our faith in a time of exile. I'm indebted in these weeks to, to the work of David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock and also a pastor by the name of Mark Sayers who comes uh, from Melbourne, Australia. So why do they call it Digital Babylon? Well, to get there, I want to take a few minutes and look at the original Babylon. Babylon was a city that throughout Scripture is kind of set against God. It's set up as the antithesis to Jerusalem. You've got Jerusalem over here, God's holy city, and you've got Babylon, which is set against God. It goes back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10, where they wanted to build a tower to heaven to make a name for themselves rather than a name for God. Later in the Old Testament, God warned his people that if they weren't faithful, they were going to be sent into exile. This was the message of the prophets over and over again. If you don't turn away from the idols you're worshiping, God's going to take you into exile. And so the northern tribes of Israel were carried off by the Assyrians, and then sometime later, the southern tribes of Judah were carried off by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. So I want to take a look at Daniel chapter 1, uh, this passage that Tama read for us this morning. God had handed over Judah and King Jehoiakim, and they were taken into exile. This included some of the royal family, some of the nobles, the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of the people of Judah. And they took some things that were used in the temple worship there in Jerusalem, and they carried them off to the temple of their gods, their gods there in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was taking the best and the brightest, the leaders and the future leaders. And so uh, Daniel 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar instructed one of his officials, Ashpenaz, to groom and train some of the very best young men. Men who were without any physical defect. They were handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in a king's palace. These were the very best that Jerusalem had to offer. So they were taken by the officials. They were taught the language of Babylon. They were taught the literature of Babylon, you know, the stories, the philosophy, the thought process of, of the Babylonians. And they were given food each day from the king's table. These young men weren't just being trained. They were being reprogrammed. They were being taught to speak, think, and live like Babylonians. And among these young men, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might know those three better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were the ones who later in the book of Daniel stood up when all of the people were told to bow down to the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. 
But but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those were their Babylonian names. And Daniel was called Belteshazzar. You see, even their Jewish identities, even their Jewish names were being taken from them and replaced with Babylonian ones. So you have these young men who have been taken from their homelands, taken from their families, taken from their faith, and everything else they knew. And they were put into a completely new culture, into a context that had no room for who they used to be. And for three years, they were given the best of what Babylon had to offer. The best teachers, the best food, the best. And this was with the assumption that they would become Babylonians and serve the king of Babylon. That's the portion of scripture this morning that Tama read for us earlier. So this is what's happening with the people of Judah who were taken into exile in Babylon. They were taking the best and the brightest to make them into Babylonians. So if that's the original Babylon, what about this digital Babylon I was talking about? You see, in digital Babylon, instead of the best Babylonian teachers, screens have become the new disciple makers. Uh, the research says that, 20, that young adults from 18 to 30 is what we're looking at, but it really applies to all of us. Young adults spend 22 times the amount of time absorbing content from a screen as they do taking in spiritual content in the course of a year. The average person in America touches their phone over 2,600 times a day. And that includes actions like typing and swiping and tapping, you know, those kind of things. But, but even more of a reality, Amer average users in America unlock their smartphone 80 times a day. If you take out the time when you're sleeping, which I hope you're not on your phone while you're sleeping, although you never know with technology these days, that comes out to touching, unlocking your phone every 12 minutes throughout the day. You think that doesn't change the way we see and interact with the world? Of course it does. You see, humans weren't created to live at the speed of technology. We can't keep up with that endless stream of news feeds and posts. We can't do it. It creates what they call FOMO, which is an anxiety. It means the, the fear of missing out because we're afraid that we're going to miss something. If we don't stay on our screen, if we don't stay locked into what's going on, we're going to miss out on what is happening. But, but the other thing that these technologies allow us to do is to mediate the way we portray ourselves to one another. In Digital Babylon, we can choose to be almost anyone we want to be. And we can choose to limit our interactions to those who are like us, those who agree with us, those who think like us, those who look like us. Whatever that version of us we want to portray to the rest of the world. We have more ways than ever to connect with people than at any point in human history. But people today are lonelier than ever. Here are a few other realities about the culture of digital Babylon. One, there's a rejection of absolute truth in Western culture today. People want to talk about my truth and my reality rather than talk about the truth or reality as it exists. 
People want to define what is true by how it makes them feel and how they interpret those things through their own lenses. Doubt and skepticism are held up as virtues in the world today. People with convictions, especially if they're strong convictions, they get labeled as fanatics or, uh, you know, fundamentalists. We don't want to seem too certain of anything in the world today because uh, what might seem certain to me may not be the truth for someone else. And that leads to pluralism. That says that all paths, all philosophies, all religions are equally true. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe something. In Digital Babylon, happiness is held up as the highest goal that we can aim for. And the way to be happy is to look inside ourselves, to decide who we truly are. And uh, we do that by not doing anything that doesn't make us feel good. If it feels bad to us, then it's not good. It, it's not part of making me happy, and so it can be rejected. Digital Babylon says that the self is at the center of everything, and each person can decide what's right and what's best for themselves. Is it any wonder that anxiety and depression have skyrocketed in recent years? Just, Im just imagine for a minute trying to keep up with all of that. Where, you're, where you yourself are set as, as the only reference point in your life. Now I want to go back to Daniel 1 and I want to go on just a little bit further. So let's pick up in verse 8 and see how these young people, Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, how did they respond? So in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, but Daniel... That one word, but, it changes everything. It goes on, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food or wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Daniel resolved. He set in his heart that he didn't want to defile himself with the food and wine that had been sacrificed to the gods of the Babylonians. And so the story goes on. After some negotiation back and forth, the official agrees to let them try it for 10 days as a test to see he was afraid that they weren't going to look as good as the other young men who were eating the Babylonian food uh, that was given to them by the king. And so he was afraid he was going to get in trouble, that these men didn't fare as well. And so at the end of those 10 days, they looked better than all the other young people that were being trained. And God had honored their devotion. He gave them wisdom and knowledge. Daniel had the ability to interpret dreams. And when they were presented to King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of their training period, which was about three years long, he couldn't find anyone as good as those four young men. So how does it happen? How do these young people stand firm in the face of this kind of cultural coercion? Everything that they knew was being changed and challenged and had been taken away. What is different about them that causes them to be resilient when others around them capitulated to the culture? We don't, we don't hear stories that all the young men from Jerusalem who were taken to Babylon responded this way. There's something different about these four men. I think there are three things, briefly, that we can look at that 
show us something of the difference that Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael experienced. First one, they recognized that the culture around them wasn't like Jerusalem. They knew they couldn't expect life to look the same in Babylon as it did in Jerusalem. They could see that things were different and they had to respond to that new reality. So they recognized the culture around them. But two, they remembered their roots. They remembered what it meant to be faithful. And they understood that they had been formed differently as the people of God. And then number three, they resolved to stand firm. Like we heard about Daniel, they resolved to stand firm. They made a choice of the will. And they didn't just accept all the new things that were being set in front of them. They resolved in their hearts because they remembered what, who they were and what God had called them to. And because they recognized that the culture they lived in, the world they found themselves in, was no longer like their home in Jerusalem. And so I just wonder, do our young people, the young people in our lives, in our church, in our families, have this kind of resilient faith in the midst of what has become a foreign and hostile culture? Do we as adults have that kind of faith? I think by and large the answer is no. Think about how many times you've heard a version of the story that says, oh yeah, I went off to college and my faith was challenged, or I didn't get connected to a church, or I found uh, the question, I found questions that my Sunday school answers couldn't answer. And far too many times, those people, those young adults, end up falling out of church. They end up drifting off to something else. Uh, sometimes they end up choosing to walk away from what they've been raised to believe. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life or in your family. Do we have any hope? That there can be anything different in the face of a culture that no longer looks like the culture we're used to? I believe there is. There's research that's been done by the Barna Group, the preeminent Christian research group here in the United States, and it shows that young people who grew up in the church can be put into one of four different groups. I want to take a quick time out, though, before we get there, because I don't want anyone over 40 saying, oh, well, this, this sermon's just for the young people. Or the, the things that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, that's, that's just for those millennials. Many times when the Bible talks about a generation, it's talking about the people of God who are alive within a certain era. Not necessarily a, a demographic generation, but the people of God who exist at a certain point in time. The things that we're talking about may be drawn from research that's been done among young adults today, but it applies to every single one of us in one way or another. It doesn't matter if you come from the builder generation or the boomers or Gen X, millennials, or something else. And just to be clear about those younger generations, I'm going to get up here on my soapbox for a minute. Uh, the millennials that everyone equates with young, self-centered, college-age people, as of this year, they're mostly out of college. In fact, you've got a pastor who is a millennial, a pastor who's closer to 40 than 30, who has a wife 
and four kids. You can't just equate young people with millennials anymore. There's another generation coming up after the millennials into it, who are coming into adulthood right now. They're called Gen Z or the Zoomers, which takes on a whole new meaning in the context of COVID-19 when, because of social distancing, we're doing everything over Zoom. Okay, I'm off my soapbox now. Back to the research. Of young adults who grow up in the church, I want you to hear this. Of young people who grow up in the church, this isn't out in the world in general. This isn't across American cultures. This is young adults who grew up in the church. 22% actively, consciously walk away from their faith. We'll call them prodigals. 22% walk away from their faith. 30% identify as Christian. But for one reason or another, they've, they've drifted out of the church. They probably haven't been to church in the last six months. We'll call them nomads. They might identify as Christians, but they're not connected to church. They're not practicing their faith. They're not uh, developing their faith. So that's 22% prodigals, 30% nomads. We're over half of young people who have grown up in the church who are not active and connected to a church body anymore. Okay, so 38% go to church at least once a month, but their values and beliefs look more like the surrounding culture than the culture of the church. 38%. We're going to call those churchgoers. So we're up to 90% of young adults whose whose faith doesn't reflect the faith they grew up in. Only 10% of young people who have grown up in the church are what we'll call resilient disciples. They attend church regularly. They trust in the Bible. They're committed to Christ. And they have a desire to see the world transformed because of their faith. Only 10% look like Daniel and his friends. So the question for us again is, just like it was with Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, what's different about them? What's different about that 10%? What values or practice do they have in common? What can we learn from them so that we can develop followers of Jesus who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. We're going to look at those things in the coming weeks, but I'm not even going to give you a preview of what they are. You're going to have to come back. I'll give you a hint though. There are five things we're going to talk about. But there's a question that sits here before us this morning, before we ever get to those five lessons that we're going to look at in the weeks to come. And that question is, how are we going to respond to our time in exile. And I think there are three basic responses that any of us could have. One, we could complain that things aren't like they used to. Oh, back in my day, we used to da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Back in my day, everybody was part of church and did da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Back in my day, we shut down everything on Sundays so that we could go to church. We can complain that things aren't like they used to. Two, 
We could despair over what currently is, over the current realities. Oh, these days, these kids, blah, 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 blah. These days, you know, nobody takes time to go to church. No one makes church a priority. These days, kids are just da, 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 da. We could despair over what currently is. The third thing, though, we can do is we can get busy building resilient faith in our own lives that can get passed down to generations be coming behind us. We have an opportunity here in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak. We're all still under lockdown here in New Jersey. We don't see the end of that coming in the next days or even the next couple of weeks. So we have an opportunity to pause and evaluate where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. Are the things that we're giving our time, resources, and energy to, the things that build resilient disciples, are the things that I'm giving my personal time and energy to, the things that build resilient disciples, are the things we're giving our church's time and energy and resources to, the things that build this kind of resilient faith. I believe that the COVID-19 outbreak isn't going to be just an interruption to our lives where by the end of it we get done and we, we go back to normal, whatever normal was. I don't think COVID-19 is going to be just an interruption to our lives. I think it's going to be a disruption to our lives. We're not going to go back to what was normal when this is all said and done. But we will move into something new. And I think that's an opportunity. God allowed the people of Judah to go into exile for a purpose. His goal was never to send his people into exile and leave them there. His goal was to turn the hearts of the people back to him, to get their attention, to point out the futility of the idols they had been worshiping in God's place, to show them, as our call to worship reminds us, that he has plans for them, plans to give them a future and a hope. So brothers and sisters, what are you going to do with this opportunity? Will you take time to let God speak to you about things in your life, the priorities of your life, the way you spend your time, your energy, your resources? Are we going to be just like the national average that says that we give 22 times more of our time and attention to things on a screen? than we do to things that God wants to use to shape our spiritual lives. Will you let God speak about the things our church is doing? Are, are the meetings we have, are the activities that we uh, produce, are the programs that we run, are, are the Sunday morning services set up in a way that they are building resilient faith in our lives, and in the generations that are coming up. Are there things, maybe even very good things, that are not contributing to developing that kind of resilient faith in our lives, but instead take our attention away from the things that are the best? There's that old saying that the good is the enemy of the best. So what are those good things in our families? 
Maybe it's too much sports. Maybe it's too much focus on academic things and getting ahead in, in AP classes and, and school and that kind of stuff. Maybe it's uh, recreation and vacations and stuff like that. We're giving too much time to some of these good things that are keeping us from giving our best time to God and what he wants to do in our lives. What are those things in our church that we need to tweak or, or change just a little bit to make them the best that God has for us? Are there things that are keeping us from the best that God has for our church and developing that kind of resilient faith in our lives? I don't think that the new that we emerge into after COVID-19 is suddenly going to look like Jerusalem again. I think we're going to find that when this all ends, we're still in exile. We're still living in this post-Christian Western culture. But I also believe that God is looking to raise up a remnant of resilient disciples and that he has plans to give us a future and a hope. So how are we going to respond to this exile? I, for one, I want to get busy building resilient faith that can be passed on to others. I've only got so much time and energy to give. I want to use what I have to develop followers of Jesus who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the Spirit. If the statistics are true, I don't think it's good enough for half of one of my four sons to be raised up to be a resilient disciple. I'm not willing to, to watch 36 other kids in our church walk away from God for various reasons so that my four kids can be uh, raised as, as the 10%. We've got to do better, church. And it starts with us. We've got to develop that kind of resilient faith that God is calling us to so we can pass it on to the next generation. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what that means and how that happens. And so I want to encourage you to keep coming back. And in fact, if you want to talk about this more, this idea of digital Babylon, of, of the post-Christian West, of how we live and operate within this new reality, how we live as faithful disciples within digital Babylon, I want to invite you to join at uh, 7.30 tonight. We're going to be on a Zoom call, and the details of that are going to be down in the description of this video. I encourage you to come and join us as we discuss more of what it means to live as Christians, faithful Christians, resilient disciples in the face of digital Babylon. I hope that's where your heart is too this morning. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we want to give our very best to you. And we want to give our best to, to raising up resilient disciples. And so we pray that you would help us in these days to, to learn how to live as your people in exile in this digital Babylon that surrounds us. God, would you show us, would you shine a light on the things in our own lives that look more like the culture around us than what you're calling us to be. 
God, we pray that you would help us. Give us the courage to make hard choices about our own lives, about the life of our church, so that the good things we're doing don't become the enemy of the best that you've called us to be. God, we pray that you would help us in these days to be faithful, to be faithful followers of Jesus in the midst of a culture that no longer welcomes a Christian presence, in the face of a culture that is okay with people being spiritual, but not religious, not standing there with convictions. God, help us to ground ourselves firmly in who you are, in your word, and who you've called us to be for the sake of the world around us being transformed. God, whenever a culture comes along, there's always another culture that comes up to react against it. So God, we pray that the culture that comes to react against this post-Christian culture we find ourselves would be filled with your spirit and would unleash a new revival and renewal, transformation throughout your world for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you today, and I hope we see some of you a little later.